Good morning, C4 Church. Really glad that you're here this morning, and to you watching and listening online, wherever you might be, most likely a cottage, we bless you anyways. It's good. We're glad that you're joining us. Like we just saw in the video, this is week two in our series, uh, We the People. Our theme this year, as Pastor Dave preached uh, strongly last week, has been the theme of believe. We started this year, remember, by emphasizing who God was, and we were invited to believe on Him for the first time, or if we knew Him, to start walking with Him in a much deeper way. And we chose to walk through the Gospel of John, because in the Gospel of John, we see the full revelation of who God is through Jesus Christ, and John, Jesus' best friend, writes the book so people might believe and continue to believe. And remember what we learned? Believing for Christians is not just intellectual assent. Believing is actually encountering someone. It's not just knowing about, it's knowing him. We just finished a series out of the book of Haggai that encouraged us as a church uniquely to believe in what God has begun among us and has promised us as a church. And so now we come to the last series in this whole ministry year, still emphasizing the theme of believe. And like we know, it's called We the People. And the heart of this series is simple. It is to actually begin to not only know, but believe what God has done on behalf of all of us. But see, that begs questions very quickly. Do we actually know what God says over us as a people and individually? And if we sort of know or fully know what he says, do we actually intellectually know or do we believe what God has actually sung and said over us? And if we don't believe why God has done things or what he said over us, the question is, why? That brings us to one grand question this morning, and here it is. Why don't we change as people? I mean, why don't we as human beings really change? I was sitting with a change expert last week who had been sitting with scholars who their whole academic career is talking about why human beings change or don't change. Theologians and counselors and therapists and sociologists, and they sat together and they worked on the question, why do human beings choose to change, or at least where are you given opportunity to change? Very interesting. He stood up and he said after probably thousands of hours of research and debate, There's not 40 reasons why people change. There is not 30, not 20, there are not 10. There are only two reasons why human beings, no matter what culture you come from, change. Two. I was intrigued. I leaned in at that moment. He said the first one is this. People change when they hit rock bottom. When you have nothing left to distract you and nothing left to entertain you and you either are going to die or you're going to lose everything, at that moment, you have the opportunity to maybe change. No one likes going there, but it's honest. But then he said something else that intrigued me. The first one sort of makes sense to me. But he said, actually, the other one that is rarely talked about in religious or non-religious circles is actually even a more powerful one. I leaned in more. Hmm. He said, when people are given a vision 
of something grander than themselves, that they can see themselves being different somewhere in the future. That is as poignant and powerful as rock bottom. He says, all the studies show us you either hit hell on earth or you look and see something could be significantly different. And in those two places, and only those two places, do human beings have the real opportunity to change. I mean, let's be honest with yourselves this morning. Many of us haven't changed in years. We've changed jobs. We've changed, well, weight. We've, ch- we've lost hair. We've gained... But change... Real, lasting, radical change where you think different, you act different, you have a different worldview, very, very rare. So here's the deal. For you who have just hit rock bottom, or you know you're about to hit it, to the many of us who aren't going to hit rock bottom and might not want to see or even sense the need for a greater vision of what is, this summer series is God's personal word to you. See, we're Christians in this place. We're not just human beings, though we are. We're Christians. And the implication of us meeting Jesus, the implication of having Jesus as Savior and the leader of our life and the Lord of our universe is that we have already been given a heaven grander vision that has not only been painted over us and spoken over us in a future sense, it, in this case, has already been given to us now. And yet, most Christians, even the most devout Christians who've walked with Jesus for 40 years and could sing every hymn and chorus ever, do not hold on to what God has already declared over them as the real vision for their life. Let me say that again. Many, many people sitting here this morning and watching online, you love Jesus, you are devoutly Christian, you've been baptized, connect group, you know your spiritual gifts, but the vision for your life, the driving factor that actually you live from and you think from and you believe from is not what God actually says over you. And so we don't really change. We live between rock bottom and what could be, and we look up or down every once in a while and say, well, you know, heaven's coming. It's going to be better then, I suppose. And yet God's Word, His living and active Word, the Scriptures, holy writ, given to us by God, are so powerfully clear about what has already happened to us. Now, many, many people misapply Scripture and say things that are coming in the future will always happen here. But in this case, we can say this with authority. Only if we would choose to see what God has already promised and done in us, would a consuming given reality, a a, a move in us happen that was real, lasting, and powerful. See, we would actually be changed. See, the pink elephant in the room of most churches, as Dallas Willard said before he died, is that very few people are being transformed by Jesus. The pink elephant in the room is many of us don't see any change, significant change, worldview change, ethical change, because we don't maybe want transformation. And yet God comes and says, have you not heard the vision I have given you? 
I love that Pastor Dave last week quoted Neil Anderson because Neil got it very right when he wrote these words. Listen closely this morning. The most important belief we possess is a true knowledge of God and who God is. He said, but the second most important belief is who we are as children of God because, and I love this, we cannot consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how we perceive ourselves. Translation, the way you think and the way you live proves what you think about what God has said over you or what he hasn't. How you think of yourself biblically or unbiblically will determine how you live your life. Your sex life is a reflection, by the way, of your belief in God. Your money is a reflection of your connection to God. How you look at others, how you deal with different people, how you face your job, who you are when no one is looking, all of it truly reflects your actions, my actions, reflect do we really know what he says or do we believe it. But see, if we would listen to what God actually says this summer, we would begin to walk in a confidence many of us do not have, and the missing transformation in many of our lives would happen. See, we can begin to believe what's true about us, and we could actually stop living under the influence of lives which we have said over ourselves, or others like family and friends or enemies have declared over us in the past or now, or even what the demonic says at 3 a.m. See, here's the point. Who has more authority in your life? God or you, God or your friends, God or the world, God or Satan. And you will know it by how you think. Now, one of the most powerful passages that actually connects us to who God is and what he's already done over us and is inviting us into is found in the book of Colossians. So you got your Bible physically, virtually. I'd love you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. This is a powerful, powerful, powerful scripture. Here, Paul quotes either a song or a poem that is one of the grandest visions of Jesus Christ in the whole Bible. And as he is describing it, he describes who God is, and then he turns and says, and now this is who we are because of him. See, Neil Anderson got the, the order right. God, then us. Never us, then God. Now prepare yourself, C4 Church. This series will threaten much of how you see the world, how you see God, how you see others, and yourself. But if you would, as Joanna prayed so right, posture yourself to really hear what God is saying, you will begin to realize it's not actually a threat, though it will feel like that at the beginning. It's actually freedom. Can you imagine a church of people that do not only intellectually know what God has done through Jesus, but actually begin to live their life out of it? What would change in this church? What lies would finally be broken in you? How would you approach your job differently? How would you talk to friends differently? How would you talk to your children or family differently? How would you approach others of a different race or a different generation or even enemies? How would you speak about God? How would you relate to God? What would you finally stop saying over yourself or others that is a lie? And what would you finally start declaring over yourself that is true? Well, let's see what God does. Paul's writing to an amazing church in a town or a city called Colossae. The church is growing and it has a good reputation, but there is a problem. There are a group of people either connected to the church or, or in the church that are starting to teach 
that Jesus isn't exactly who we thought he was. And his work's a little different. And see, if Jesus changes and his work changes, well, actually, the implications change. Now, they're nothing new under the sun. You can go buy their books today and chapters for under $50. They're called Gnostics. Now, Gnostics called themselves Christians and said they loved Jesus, but they're not part of us. And they're all around us, by the way, today, even in this church. Here's what Gnostics taught. The whole material universe was bad. It was a mistake. Only spiritual things are good. See, God is spirit, and since he's good, anything that's physical obviously is from the devil or something else. And so basically our bodies, these physical things, are traps. These are cages. And the real essence of us is trapped inside of this. And one day through secret knowledge, which by the way, they happen to have, how convenient... If you found out how to do it, your body would be removed and your spirit would be free. Sound familiar? Something like nirvana or something? Just saying, nothing new under the sun. And so spiritual is good, physical is bad. And so they started teaching that Jesus was never physically really here because the material universe is bad. So actually Jesus just appeared as a man. He wasn't really one. And Jesus didn't physically die on the cross. The man Jesus maybe didn't, but his spirit called Christ didn't. And three days later, it only appeared like he physically rose from the dead to help us. He, he was actually just a spiritual being. And God, by the way, hates the whole part of the universe. See, when he makes all things right, it's just going to be spiritual. And all this physical stuff will be shedded. And Paul comes along and says, don't you dare listen to these people. They appear Christian, but they are not. Here's an old word, not very Canadian. Heretic. False teacher. Appearing like a sheep, but they are a wolf. And so Paul begins to combat this very dangerous teaching because if the physical universe is bad, then Jesus is not fully God and fully human. And by the way, the whole idea of God loving the universe in all of its entirety falls apart. And so Jesus is threatened. And Paul says, well, let's just deal with this. He says in verse 15 in chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. From all eternity, Jesus in his very nature has always been and always will be the image of God. Only in Jesus do we fully understand who the only true God fully is. But let's be honest, when you read this as someone living in 2013, it's a little confusing. How can the invisible have an image? Well, you've got to understand how Greek philosophy worked back then. See, an image was not distinct from the thing it was representing. It wasn't like a reproduction or a facsimile. It actually was attached to the thing it was representing. It actually is the thing. And so when someone read this in the first century, it was very clear. When they heard Jesus was the image of God, he is the exact visible representation of God because he is God. So in Jesus... And only through Jesus do we see the fullest expression of God because he is the only one that bears the capital I image of God. And not only does it say that he is the image of God, it also says in verse 15, he is the firstborn over all of creation. Jesus isn't part of creation. He's above everything in creation. Firstborn is a title out of Psalm 89, which means that he is sovereign. This is not saying that Jesus was the first created being. This is saying he is the sovereign one over creation. So Jesus is God. He's over all things in creation. He's not just some subhuman that was elevated to something spiritual. No, no. He is God. 
And then Paul, just like John, brings it home when he says, and by Jesus, verse 16, everything was created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and they were for him. Now I want you to catch this. Jesus, who we just sang to in this church, a guy who was 33 years old 2,000 years ago who died and we believe rose again, we are believing and declaring that that guy was actually the creator God himself. And everything we know, capital R reality, seen and unseen, was created by him and for him, and they're all underneath his feet, by the way. Humans, stars, fish, oceans, the universe, from grass and trees to water and atoms. Paul says that God the Father, through Jesus, made reality. But I love this, and it's important for today. Not only does it say that he created all the things that are seen. See, what he's saying is the physical and the spiritual are good, because God made them all. But he says, God, through Jesus, all may already and had made thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. What does that matter? Well, let me tell you. This is the language Paul invokes when he talks about angels. He is saying that Jesus not only created everything we know and see, but also the unseen realm. And these thrones and powers and rulers and authorities once were for God. But Paul, in his language, uses these titles when he's talking about demons. These are the ones that stuck the middle finger in God's face and said, we are better than you, declared war in heaven and were thrown out. And Paul is saying, I love this, right in the middle of the text, and oh, by the way, in case you're wondering who's in charge, every unholy thing that hates God, wink, wink, Jesus made them too. Nice try. Jesus is sovereign over everything. He is the creator of everything. And so it says in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. God didn't just create everything, set up some rules and walk away like a messed up clockmaker. He's involved. Jesus is the rationale, the rhythm, the reason, the system. He's not just a force that keeps everything together. He's the personal God that keeps it together forever. Or as one theologian said, he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. He is the controlling factor right now. We are breathing because of Jesus Christ now. The universe is not spinning out of control because of Jesus Christ now. And so Paul paints this profound picture of the supremacy and the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ. And then he shifts. And the move and the song shifts from the first creation now to the second creation, us. He moves to the new creation. Easter comes into focus as the epicenter of history. You see, Jesus is not only creator and sustainer, but see, God wrote himself into time. And so God is not distant in some faraway heaven. He walks into our time and space because Jesus, as we found out in the book of John, is not just with God, he was God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so the one who came lived a perfect life and was crucified, then physically resurrected. And out of this supernatural event, a new creation begins. The first sign of what was lost is going to be recovered. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the source of the church. 
All of us who are Christians right now, sitting here in C4, sitting at Calvary Baptist this morning, sitting at Harvest this morning, sitting at People's Church this morning, sitting at Rexdale this morning, sitting in Africa and Asia, every one of us right now are connected by Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Billions of us are connected by Jesus at this moment. But it goes farther than that. We also are connected, hear this, to every single Christian who's already died, who's already in heaven. Death does not separate us through Christ. Jesus is the source of the church. Let me tell you, there is one leader at C4, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is the head of all churches, whether they realize it or not. He is the supreme source of all things. And then he keeps going, and and he reminds us that the church is not about institutional survival. It is about the redemptive purposes of Jesus, that we get to join him. Church isn't about you or me, it's about him. And then he says in verse 18, continuing, that Jesus is the beginning and out of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. See, Jesus is the first one to walk out of the tomb and keep on living and never die again. Have you thought about that? Everyone else, even who was resurrected by Jesus, died again. Sorry, Lazarus, it was cool, but you're still going to die, right? But not Jesus. Jesus has conquered death. The physical resurrection of Jesus, not just the spiritual one, the physical one, is the, it's the center, it's the reason why we as Christians proclaim that salvation is through Jesus alone, because he's the only one who's conquered death, he's the only one who's come back from the other side, he's the only one who can reveal the one on the other side, because he is him. And so Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, and he has supremacy. And if we trust in Jesus, we know the scriptures declare, as he was resurrected, we physically also will be resurrected into new bodies. I'm going to get my hair back like I've preached. No sin, no death, no mourning, nor pain. The old order will pass away. A new thing will come. Paul, just concerned that maybe we didn't get it, says it again in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. If you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. Like I preached in the John series, if you have the DNA of God, you have to be God for there is only one God in this universe and if you share his DNA, you're him. And so Jesus is creator, sustainer, the firstborn from the, among the dead. He has overcome the evil one. He is the head of the church, and he is the forefront of God's mission to make everything right. How he loves us. How he wants to restore not just us, hear this this morning, church, but all of creation back to himself. You're going, John, when are we going to talk about us? In a minute. You got to get this right first. It says in verse 20, and through him, he reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, here is the point of Jesus' death. It isn't just to save us so we go to heaven. The beginning of the cross and the end of the cross is God's attempt and victory to restore everything back to himself. See, what sin marred in Jesus' work the first time, Jesus came and died because he's going to make everything right again. There's going to be no more disease, no more war. There's going to be no more pollution because when Jesus comes back a second time, all of creation is going to be restored. Jesus loves all of creation, not just us as human beings. And so Jesus' work on the cross gives you and I peace between us and God. 
We've been given the gospel of freedom. The barrier of sin has been broken between us and God. But the greater move is this. Jesus came to undo what we did. And since he created it in the first place, he came back to save all of it. And see, the Gnostics taught, let everything burn because it's useless. And he said, no, no, I have come to set all creation right again. For I declared it was good, and I will declare it as good again. This is the power of the cross that we miss. And so when we embrace Jesus, we are given peace, and it is the symbol of what is to come. So, you've got to know who God is clearly before you talk about identity. You've got to know who the source of the church is before we talk about who we are as the church. You've got to know what he did on the cross and what his goal was on the cross. But there's another thing we all need to know before we get to the good stuff. We also need to know very clearly who we were before we met Jesus. So you need to know how serious it was before you know how good it is. Only when you see the danger and the death we are involved in will you be able to be moved, as one said, to like breathless gratitude. See, every Christian, every once in a while, needs to say out loud, O wretched man or woman that I was, not am, was. We don't swim in our history. But we cannot lie or obfuscate our history. We can't make it lesser than it is. And many of us in this church have. And I don't care if you became a Christian at 3 or 2 or 30 or 80. See, whether you remember this or not, this is what we all were positionally before God. See, when this becomes scarily clear, our identity becomes even more powerful. Once, verse 21, you were alienated from God. And you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is how God sees every human being without Christ. And I remind all of us this morning, before we get deeply offended, this was by our own doing. We are alienated and we are enemies of the living God. We are isolated, alone, a deep sense of non-belonging. We are estranged from God. And not only that, we are enemies in our mind. Our thoughts and our actions continually, even the most religious among us, are involved in a pattern of chronic sinful behavior. We are strangers to God and enemies of Him. You can think about any world religion you want this morning or your own life or a spiritual person or secular. Listen to what our culture really teaches us. Personal fulfillment. Potential, self-actualization, self-expression. I get to take care of my own being, when I want and how I want. I am the master of my future. You need to be assertive. You need to be involved in self-fulfillment. You have the right to your own space. Your call is to be involved in self-therapeutic enhancement. What a contrast to words like repentance, confession, relationship, submission, Friendship, covenantal agreement. When we are the center of our own reference, we are lost because we must become the enemy of our true center. That is what every single one of us was before Jesus. Every person you know, good, moral, deeply religious, secular, or spiritual, this is their condition before God at this moment. You reduce it, you reduce the power of the gospel. But God doesn't leave us in our chosen condition. That is why our God is not just holy, but He is holy love. 
His passionate yearning for his children to come home has never been stopped. It is unquenched, it is consistent, it is continuous. That is why Jesus came. And so, look at verse 22. Can you bring it up? No, you got it, good. But now. Can we just say that really loud in three seconds? One, two, three, ready? But now. Oh. But now. But now. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, establish and firm and do not move from the hope held out in our most precious gospel. But now, these are the words written over every doorpost of every Christian's life. They are the best description of what has happened to us and what will happen to us. This should actually be the hashtag for the series, but now. This is where we derive our identity from. You that are struggling with the Christian faith this morning, you that have walked away from the faith, you that have allowed others or the world or the demonic to twist and break your faith, when you choose to live in and through someone else's statement over you versus God, it is idolatry. His voice must be the one that has full sway and authority because he loves you and he wants you to be free. Hear who you are before the living God of heaven and earth this morning because of Jesus Christ and your trust in him. There are three truths that are declared here. Number one, you are reconciled. Number two, you are without blemish. Number three, you are not accused. You are not condemned any longer. You are reconciled. There is peace between you and God. You are not an enemy anymore. You are his friend. God loves you. And you are reconciled to God even though we were his enemy and estranged. He came and made us his children again. We are reconciled. That is your identity. Nothing else. This is the ground floor that you must begin at. You know, it also says here that you're without blemish. It's sacrificial language. When they brought little lambs or other animals to be sacrificed, the rule was they could not be deformed. They couldn't be diseased. They had, to be, they had to be perfect. And we are being told here that we are offered to God in a full sense, without blemish. We are legally okay and spiritually okay because of Jesus. You're without blemish this morning, C4 Church. And you're free from accusation. Listen. Your heart and my heart tells us things all the time. You're worthless, you're garbage, you're ugly, you're whore. No one will ever listen to you. You're not spiritual enough. No, that's a lie. We are free from accusation. Our past is not greater than the work of Jesus. Our present condition is not greater than the work of Jesus. We are not accused any longer because the one that actually stood in our place put everything on his body that could accuse us. That is why you must ground your identity in the work of Jesus and never your own religious understanding. You are reconciled, you are without blemish, and you are free from accusation. And there is a reason why verse 23 comes next. Do you notice it? Hope. Don't move from the hope you've already been given. Right when you as a Christian move from the hope you've been given, you end up going back to eat things and live in things that you've been saved from. 
You begin believing lies. The power level of the Spirit drops in you drastically. There is a disconnection between you and the love of God and the worship of God. You don't come to church prepared to encounter Him because you're not even sure if He likes you because you believe things that are not hope. God says, do not give up on the hope I have already spoken over you. You are reconciled. You are without blemish. You are free from accusation. And then He keeps going. Flip the chapter to chapter 2, Colossians 2. Just flip over. Look, at, look what he says next about us. You, when you were dead in your sins, oh, not only were you an alien and estranged from God and an enemy, oh, you were spiritually dead too, just as a side note. You had no ability even to meet him, but God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he took it away by nailing it to the cross. Anyone want to say amen? And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them by the cross. Here's what happens next, which is even more powerful. Not only were we dead and he brought us back to life, not only now do we not need to fulfill the legal requirements, it actually says on the cross, Jesus disarmed every single demon and made a mockery of them. They don't own us anymore. He does. Every principality, power, rule, and authority no longer has full authority. I love what Neil Anderson says when he said on this topic, so many Christians get scared when Satan roars. He says, don't you understand? His fangs got ripped out and he's declawed. Why are you letting him gum you to death? Why? Don't you know what happened on the cross? The most evil, vile things that are evil incarnate, DNA, those things that set up a world system that continue to fight him, they have lost. They are done. They have power, they are dangerous, but they do not have full authority anymore. My master Jesus does. See, this is the heart right here. Now, if you really get into this, and you begin to derive your identity here, this is when it gets unbelievably powerful. And let me just read one verse to you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says this, And God raised all of us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. You're saying, well, what's the point? Here it is. If every principality, power, ruler, and authority were made by Jesus, for Jesus, and they're underneath his feet, and we're seated with Jesus, well, guess who's under my foot too? power. See, so many of you walk around and you look at other Christians and you go, how come they seem to have such a more powerful Christian life than me? Well, either they're faking it and actually they're about to get exposed or actually maybe they believe what the Bible says about them and what they get to do. See, it's not confidence in ego. It's not confidence in personality. It's not having a charismatic personality or being really super gifted. No, no. It's actually living out of the place that Scripture says we already are. It's an other-centered confidence. And that is where power comes from. Because in that is humility. See, this is what the Scripture declares right now. We are children of God in this church if you're a Christian. And the statement or phrase, but now, has to be the marker that you live out of. So let me end with these thoughts. Number one, and by the way, you are now, it's going to get distracting in the next few minutes. You're going to want to leave. You're going to start thinking, no, no. 
this is the time everyone needs to listen closely. You are not alienated anymore. You are not an enemy of God anymore. You are not unforgiven. You have nothing to prove to God anymore. There is no legal indebtedness anymore. And you are not dead spiritually. You say, why does this matter? Let me tell you why. If you think that God only half forgives you, you'll never approach Him in boldness in prayer. If you think all the time that maybe He just won't take you back for the 15th time for messing up in that one sin, guess what takes place? Your prayer life drops. You don't read Scripture. You don't come to church very much anymore. Why? Because you don't actually live out of the place that Scripture says you are. You hide from the God who loves you. Church, we don't need to hide anymore, ever. You don't need to ever think that God does not want to hear from you. He does because he looks at Jesus. You want to see your prayer life change? Believe what this is, just believe this is true. That you can approach God with boldness at any time because you're forgiven. Even if you messed up 40 years ago or last night, that's truth. That's truth. If you continually live out of a state where you're not sure if maybe you're sort of alienated or maybe you're not fully forgiven, then you will continually not approach God with confidence. I'm saying you can and you will because scripture says it's allowed. You have to start from the position that you actually believe with your whole heart and your worldview that what Jesus did for you actually is for you. And it never is going away. You don't need to keep running to some altar on Friday night to make sure you're in. You're in. You're without blemish, period. The confidence that Christians who really walk with Jesus have is they actually live out of a place of given identity and they actually know what he says is true. You are not an enemy. You are not unforgiven. You are not alienated or estranged and you're not dead. But this is what you are. You are a forgiven people. We are. We the people were forgiven this morning. We are not owned by Satan. Some of you have terrible experiences with the kingdom of darkness. And you know exactly who you are. Let me declare this to you this morning. They may have rights or grounds to you, and they may have rights in your home, but you are not owned by them. You are owned by Jesus. Colossians 1.13 says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and He has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You throw that back in their face when they show up at 3 a.m. You are forgiven and I am forgiven. We are not owned by Satan. And here's the big one. We are without blemish. So many of us think that we are perverted or dirty before God. You are not. You say, how could I approach God because I just thought this or did this or I was involved in this or John, you don't know. No, excuse me. You are without blemish because Jesus bore everything you already did. There is power in this when you believe it and walk in it. You are reconciled. You are free from accusation. I don't care what your parents say about your future. If it is accusatory and dangerous and ungodly, you stand and say, but Jesus has my future. Enemies speak things over you. No, I'm without accusation because my Father in heaven has given me a mediator. His name is Jesus. I'm seated above evil with Christ. Now you may say, well, this is great. This is not a card to sin. This is now a card to holiness. When you know these things and you live out of these things, life radically changes. You know, mirrors in our culture are interesting. They're everywhere, right? They're in our cars. 
in our bathrooms. They're everywhere. We cut our hair in front of them if we have it. We do makeup. But I find that mirrors are a terrible thing in our culture. Mirrors are a place of self-mutilation or self-exaltation. So many of us sit in front of mirrors all the time. We say things over us that are horrific. See, this is where we actually say things when no one's looking. Many of us don't want to look in the mirror because we don't like what we physically look like or what we've become. This is where we say things that we wish we could have said at at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and just didn't have the right words. Here, so much crap is spoken over us. In these places, lies are perpetuated in the church. Our history is stronger here. Or on the other hand, many of us have another problem. This is where we get involved in pride and vanity. Look how good-looking I am, how ripped I am, how sexually virile I am. This needs to become a different place. So here's the homework for the week, everyone. I'm asking the whole church, whether you're 80 or 18 or 12, to sit in front of a mirror this week for 5, 10, 15 minutes and look yourself in the eye because your eyes are the gateway to your soul. Just stop for a moment. Practice the discipline of solitude. Turn everything off. If you're a parent like I am, do it at 3 a.m., whatever. Look in a mirror. I mean, look in a mirror. Look at your eyes and say this. Do I actually believe what Scripture says over me? And you wait for it, and the lies will begin to come as you look at yourself. And as each lie comes up, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to refute it with the truth of God. As the voice in your head says, no, but, you say, no, but this. See, we have to stop ourselves. And I would ask you to invite Jesus into that moment when you look in those mirrors. Say, Jesus, come with your living word, since you're the living word, and your written word. Come and speak to me. And by the way, you're going, oh, oh, like, I'm fine. No, no, I'm, I'm saying, I can't command you. This is North America. So, I'm strongly exhorting you as one of your pastors to do this. Because some of us who've been Christians the longest don't even know how many lies we believe. You want to be changed? You want to see the power of God reside in you? You want to see revival? Establish your identity. We the people in the work of Jesus. And look in a mirror this week and say, I am forgiven. Do I believe that? Is there anything? I am not accused. I am not a child of the devil. I, am, I do not need to prove myself to God anymore in any way. Ask. Let, let, let every wicked thought come up and every prideful inclination come up and batter it down with the work of Jesus Christ and see a new world emerge and be changed finally because the vision is grander than you. Lord, we would pray in this moment as we prepare just to quickly respond that everything that is sitting in this audience, like everything, every lie, every fallacy, every prideful inclination, 
that sits in this church, that writhes against the work of Jesus Christ, would be exposed over the summer. And the people would begin to walk, and we the people would begin to walk in a power many of us have never seen but only heard about. We just ask this simply, Lord, come so close, so close. May your glory come, which means weight. May your weight come so heavy that it will squeeze out of this church everything that violates and attempts to stop the given image of God. Transformation, Lord, nothing less is not your will. Amen.